This week's episode is brought to you by Audible.com. To get a free audiobook download and 30-day trial, visit audibletrial.com slash insideoutside. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash insideoutside to download your free audiobook today. Also, Startup Week Lincoln. Mark your calendars for the week of September 27th through October 3rd, where you can attend hundreds of events, meetups, and parties to connect with the region startup community, including a live taping of the Inside Outside podcast in coordination with Pipeline, the premier community of entrepreneurial leaders building high-growth companies. The live taping will take place at Vega in downtown Lincoln on Wednesday, September 30th at 4.30 p.m. Founders and investors really aren't that different. In either scenario, it's our job to mitigate as much risk as possible so that regardless of the situation, we're as successful as we can be. In this episode, we discuss the various risks that VCs assess and look at them from their perspective. We sat down with Paul Singh, partner at 500 Startups, incredible entrepreneur and founder of Disruption Corporation, a VC firm that was recently acquired by 1776 in Washington, D.C. All this and more on this episode of Inside Outside. Running a startup is hard. Running one outside the valley is even harder. Inside Outside is the podcast for inside access to startups outside the valley. Each week, we'll bring you real insights, raw stories, and tactical advice from founders and startup teams around the country. Let's get started. Hey, everybody, and welcome to this episode of Inside Outside. You're looking to startups outside Silicon Valley. My name's Matt Boyd. I'm Paul Jarrett. And I'm Brian Ardinger. How's Matt your Boyd, week? you're ready to go. I'm ready to go. I'm <laughs> super ready to go. I'm really tired, actually. So uh, you guys are going to have to get me through this one. We're going to poke, we poke at you, poke sticks at you. <laughs> so I learned an important, probably one of the most important things in life that I might ever need to learn last night. What's that? In the case of a robot takeover. Like a robot apocalypse. <laughs> okay. You do not trust Matt Boyd. Because <laughs> as a human, he will leave you. Last night we were playing Battlestar Galactica, the board game. And he said, I have to get up. I'm going to leave. And guess what? You never we, the Cylon team, the robot team, destroyed the humans. Let it go. <laughs> yep. They're still, the Alex and Stephanie are probably listening to this right now, still upset at you. <laughs> While Bailey and I, the two Cylons, are still taking over the world. Oh, there you go. So Elon Musk is correct. The cyborgs do. Oh, it's already happened. Oh. We just don't know it yet. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's done. It's over. You can get more data in a DNA strand than a computer chip. It's over. Game over. <laughs> we're all done. What are we talking about today? So we're talking about uh, the risks that VCs evaluate. So um, yeah, Investors look at a lot of different things and they have a little checklist of sorts that they kind of go through. Do they? Do, do all of them? No. Is, sure do you think it's everybody. some? Uh, it's like a standardized thing, or do you think that they all have their own various kind of? No, things? I think these. So uh, we found a little blog post talking about the eleven risks that VCs look at. Yeah, uh, from Redpoint oh, yeah. Capital. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think um, going Wait, through where, it, I don't think. Sorry, who is it from? Redpoint. Redpoint. Gotcha. Link in the com and the uh, description. Click below. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Um, so yeah, I think investors do take a look at different types of risks. I don't think every single startup is evaluated against all these risks, uh, nor does you know any investor look at everything at, right. across the board. Right. But I think this is a good way to think from a startup's perspective. Of like, how can I mitigate and how can I you know cross some of these things off the off the list? You're never going to get all your risks off the table, or you wouldn't be a startup. Um, but I think this is an interesting way to just think through your business and then where are my trouble points? Yeah. This is a hard topic for me because I've, I've never invested in anything. <laughs> but you, yeah, you probably have a really good perspective well, but, from a. You know, we've been invested in by yeah, VCs. So. True. And you can talk it's about true. like how did you mitigate these risks? So that's we'll go yeah, from that perspective. Yeah, so. I mean, it's kind of like they have their check boxes, right? But yeah. um, some of the better investors that I've you know met with and, and spoke with the more successful ones, they all kind of say it's the it's the jockey, not the horse. But I guess that still doesn't mean that they're not you know, going through and checking the boxes. <laughs> so I see this list of 11 check boxes. Which ones to you stick out the most? And that's a question for both of you. Because mm -hmm. there's there's like two or three that are just like jump right out at me. I think uh, for me, in, in my personal experience, so my previous company, I always talk about it, but we, we were developing on um, WebRTC. So technology risk, and, and the basic definition is, does the company have 
have to develop a new technology that may not reach fruition or may take longer than expected. And whenever we were, you know, working on the, our core technology and they're still using it, WebRTC, we jumped in super, super early and there wasn't really much of a precedent for an app that we were building in WebRTC. What's WebRTC for everybody? It's basically um, real-time, I think it's real-time communication. So uh, basically it's like native in the browser, the technology that um, right. that like uh, video calling and that kind of stuff gotcha. is built on. So you don't have to download a plugin. It just works right in your browser. And the browsers, when we started, just didn't have much built in or yeah. they were just really, really early. So so an investor looking at Squiggle would say, uh, can you actually build this technology? Is, is it too daunting yeah. or, or do you have the team capable? I remember people said, like I would talk to people that you bitch to and they would say, well, the technology isn't there. And I was like, isn't that the whole point of investing? <laughs> so yeah. like, that they have like the people and the cash and, you know, to actually, you know, get the, isn't that the whole point of this? Because if it was there, nothing, you know, you wouldn't have anything to Part invest Part of it is in. though, I mean, I think most companies don't fail because they can't build the technology. It's because there's not a market around it. And so I think technology risk is one of those things you've got to evaluate. But for, I mean, there's a large number of businesses out there that aren't built on a new, brand new technology, you know, hydrogen fusion or something like that. Yeah. So the technology risk is much more minimized um, than than some other types of businesses. And again, this is why it's like a, a general checklist of, how does each particular startup fit into the, the scenario across right. all these types of risks? Right. Which so, ones jump out to you, Brian? Um, obviously, so we talked about technology risk. I think another risk um, that, quite frankly, probably applies to every startup is execution risk. And the execution risk is really, does the team um, have the right skills to actually execute on the vision that they're you know, putting forth? Right. Do they have the right people? And if they don't have the right people... You know, do they recognize that they don't have the right people and have a plan to actually how, you know, solve that? How do you recognize that you don't have? I mean, is it basically just kind of in the very, very early onset laying out a plan um, of action and then and then basically stating all of the things that you're going to need to get that done? Or I would think that you know, if if I was an investor and I was I had a team and they just weren't kind of accomplishing milestones, right? That would yeah. be a huge red flag to me. Um, and, and not necessarily that they don't accomplish milestones, but they're able to clearly and concisely like explain why they did or did not. But I, w- I would be, you know, looking for are, are just things getting done, mm-hmm. you know? And I think from an investor perspective, they'll look at the execution risk and they'll try to minimize it from the standpoint of looking at what the team has built in the past, either with that product that they've you know that they're asking for money for or things they've done in the past you know and you can mitigate the execution risk by actually executing Uh, and uh you know i think investors take a look quite heavily at at that particular area because at the end of the day we've talked about this a number of times ideas don't really matter it's the execution of those ideas so that's a big risk what's scary too is it's kind of you know you almost want to see like as an investor like a portfolio but but sometimes depending on people's like experience but man like the amount of people that I've interviewed or worked with that say that they did X, Y, Z, and then you get them in the seat and they just freeze <laughs> up like that's, that's a, that's a problem. Right. And mm-hmm. so it's, you know, graphic designers and, um, you know, sometimes, uh, like developers have like a, a job or, or something that they need to do to prove themselves, but you can't really do that for a lot of people. Right. Or can you like? Can you like make a salesman? Here's here's a ketchup popsicle. Go (laughs) sell this to a woman with white gloves. Exactly. I mean, I think there's different ways you can probably evaluate different types of execution, but it's clearly something that investors look at. Can you? Do they think you have the chops to build what you're saying you're going to build? Yeah, that's interesting. This uh, the venture management risk uh, checkbox is is fascinating to me. Is the company receptive about feedback? Is the team candid about the state of the business? Right. That's interesting. That, that, that that one's really, yeah, man, if I was an investor and and I didn't have a team that was, you know, like uh, taking feedback or, but, but on the flip side, like what am I doing for them? Mm -hmm. Right. Um, but that would, that would be really difficult for me as a VC or an angel. That's more, I think from the standpoint of an investor looking at it and say, can I work with this company? Cause I'm going to be basically married to this company for five to 10 years. Yeah. Can I, do I really feel comfortable? Do I trust the people? Do I feel like I can help them? Yeah. So what are, uh, and so that's the risk they're trying to mitigate there. So two questions, how candid do you have to be? And what are some ways that companies can kind of promote being very open with their VC? 
man, I think 100% transparency is crucial. In 100%. 100%. Interesting. Before or after the check? After, <laughs> absolutely, absolutely after the check. Like, like you know, it's kind of like, um, you know, you, you do the pitch, you do the do, due diligence, you do those things, you show the opportunity. Um, but once, you know, once everybody's on the same team, you know, once you're recruited and you sign on and, and you're all in the thing together, like, I think it's crucial to be 100% transparent. And that was actually advice that was given to me by, um, um, somebody that, that I really respect and admire that. And I think their business was just valuate or like, I think the, it was like 500 million or something was the recent valuation of their company. So that person knows what they're doing. Um, and, and he said, be 100% transparent because that's a stress you don't need. And that totally made sense to me, right? Like I'm not going to take on the stress of, you know, always sugarcoating or or making things up. How how often do you communicate with your VC or is it more like, uh, you're 100% transparent in your monthly emails, your weekly emails, your daily calls? How often, uh, I mean, VCs probably would love it if you called them every single day, three times a day. (laughs) Um, but how how you know how often do you kind of do that? I, I, it's different for every VC, I guess. I don't know. What do you? I'm I'm curious what you guys. Ours think was or, a monthly email. That's um, all. Just a monthly email to yeah. your investors. Yeah. And they didn't they didn't really stand in our way too much. They yeah. I mean if they had a question they would ask it, but generally and and we were pretty transparent in those emails. So all of our numbers, good or bad, yep, were in there. This also depends on a number of investors in your round. You know if you have got a party round of sorts and you've got a lot of different people a lot of times there, there's no one investor truly like leading the charge and so that a lot oftentimes it can get yeah we had 80 people on our cap table so oh <laughs> damn well we had a syndicate so it yeah. was it was only like 10 people Still. technically but and there was 70 in the and you just sent one email <laughs> you son of a <laughs> <laughs> that sounds yeah. amazing right. what about what about you what are your thoughts brian um, no, yeah. I think I think communication is obviously, obviously important. It depends yeah. on. I think you just have to get on the right rhythm with your investors. Uh, some will like a lot more com- communication. Some won't, and just you know figure out what they like and what you can do to move the ball forward. Yeah, I think it's really important to. I, I mean, I think the monthly reports are crucial. Absolutely. Um, but kind of rewinding in your head as the entrepreneur and going back to okay, whereas in one of our investors, you know, reminds me of this, and, and it's really basic, but it helps out. But it's kind of explaining where we've been, where we're at, and mm-hmm. where we're going. And it's easy to just talk about either where you're at or where you're going and yeah. with kind of out those those three phases. Um, I also find that just like setting up dashboards is huge. Mm-hmm. So it's like, hey, here's the information. It's in real time. Like just log in yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, that does open up a can of worms though where there's a lot of questions, right? Because yeah. they can kind of like pop it open anytime. Um, but but I think it's, it's really important and I think smart investors will realize, you know, the monthly reports coming, the dashboards are all there, everything's, they have a plan in place, et cetera. Like we're just going to back up and get out of their hair. I also think it's crucial for investors um, where, you know, this whole, like if you're going to give feedback or whatever it is, um, you know, that there needs to be some kind of like meat and potatoes with that. Right. Yeah. yeah. Like you can't just say like, Hey, you're beating your numbers. Or, hey, you're not beating your numbers. Like, okay, like I see that same thing you do. Like, what can you, Mm -hmm. like, you know, what are you bringing beyond that? Just kind of um, informing me of the obvious. So, so the other, another, um, we've got a number of other risks on the list. Uh, Market timing risk. I think this is, so this is the risk that I think most of the dot coms ran into when, uh, in the late 90s or I think it's still a huge problem. It's still a huge problem. But I think if you look back, like, you know, Webvan was probably a market timing risk. The fact that uh, you what know, what Webvan, you know, the <laughs> grocery delivery, Back in my day. exactly, uh, or you know, pets. dot com. Any of those in the kind late of nineties Webvan, the, yeah, all the dot com craziness, guys. <laughs> <laughs> We're just looking at you like what? Whatever, so man. I can order from V right now. I would that, imagine you can go back amazing. to the uh, the Business 2.0 magazine. Do you guys ever read that one? Business 2.0? Anyway. Did you just say a magazine? Yeah, exactly. What the hell is that? <laughs> <laughs> Any of those businesses that came out in the 90s, late 90s, early 2000s, the dot-com craziness, yeah. um, I, I would imagine a lot of those were market timing risks yeah. that were uh, trying to exploit something that wasn't there. The mm-hmm. platforms wasn't, weren't there. The, the ability for consumers to pay wasn't there. All that stuff was not there. 
so the timing, the ideas may be great, yeah. but if you don't, if you get into a marketplace where the timing isn't right, uh, you can quickly run out of cash before you uh, can actually execute on the right. business model. So what, that's right. that's a big thing. And I think it's where a lot of businesses fall down. You can't invest too early in an idea, and you can't invest too late. Yeah, if it's too early, it's like dumb right because the the risk is the technology isn't there yeah but if it's too late or if you're jumping on a wave or whatever then it's yeah yeah it makes sense what are some factors that uh you know kind of determine whether market timing you know is the right it's the right time or the wrong time i think you know a lot of people from my perspective a lot of people come up with ideas and and even start executing on that and the consumer is just not ready for this like you look at this and it's just like you know I don't know. Just I think you really need to consider like the industry. Yeah. Right. And the technology you're building it on. I mean, something like an Instagram could not have been possible without the iPhone and, and the ability right. to yeah. have a What if Instagram was totally in browser? <laughs> <laughs> I still like Instagram blows my mind. I'm like, this feature was available already on Facebook. Like, yeah. I mean, they, they, no, yeah, I think, you know, Twitter and those things like those are true uh, market timing perfection. Right. They, they just They're the result so of yeah. perfect market timing. Up. Perfect. Yeah. And probably like a little luck, like, you know, met the right people at the right time. Like, but, yeah, but totally. I don't know, like F from Twitter, like, man, he just has the formula down, right? Yeah. Blogger, he, Twitter, medium, like. He plays in one, uh, like one kind of publishing space. Yeah. And I think when it, when it all it. comes down to it in, in a hundred years, like he'll be a person that people remember as just reinventing publishing in right. its entirety. Mm-hmm. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. Next list or risk on the list is uh, business model risk. So this is, you know, is there, is there a way to make money with this particular idea? Uh, do the, you know, the economics work out? Can you actually make money? And, you know, how does that play out? Uh, and I think too many early entrepreneurs don't really run the numbers. And, and I think you have to run the numbers from a business model perspective, not only to see if you, you're going to make money, but how does that compare to other options that you have on the table? You know, I, I see a lot of folks that are dabbling in maybe – a small idea and you know it takes almost the exact amount of time to work on a small idea as, as it does a big idea um and so you know actually running the numbers and saying is this worth my time is it worth my effort um to actually put this idea into place Here, here's a question so uh, uh you know a number of these apps exist the snapchats the consumer billions the, yeah massive massive companies right uh instagrams and that kind of thing and they just simply at least in the first, you know, several years of their company, uh, just didn't make any money. Um, and I know that it's like the first know, thing I thought of. Yeah. I know exactly where you're going with this. Right. Well, it's, you know, it's a thing where now everybody's focused on, uh, you know, the big trend is like B2B where there are more clearly defined business models, right? Um, what kind of entrepreneur does it take to come up with just this, this enigma of an app? that they're not sure that they're ever going to be able to make money, but clearly big companies are being built. How, like what are they just crazy? What, what are they doing that, that is different than everybody else? I feel like for every, you know, 500,000 of them, one of them. Succeeds, Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. Or a million for every million Facebooks. Like, so is it purely a gamble or are these people just smarter than everyone else? Well, I think part of it is the business model is there. I mean, if you have a billion eyeballs using your app, there's some business model where you should be able to monetize it. Now, the risk is, is it worth the valuation that you've you know invested in it? And can you actually execute on that when you turn that business model on to make revenue? But clearly that's the the plan is to get to grow as fast as possible to get as many eyeballs and people on your platform so that you can turn a business model yeah. on and, and you know, add revenue. But in the early it. onset, if they don't have uh, a billion but people. But they're getting, they're getting investment because of the growth cycle. And if you look at, I mean, Instagram, the, the number of people that got on that platform so fast, same with Snapchat, that's what the investors are banking Yeah, I mean, on. that's, that's obvious so, traction for sure. But when they first started... Uh, and they're building out their prototype and have no users. Are they just insane? They're just knuckleheads. No. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 I don't know if they're insane, but but I don't know. I mean, who knows what? That's really interesting. I it's, want to dig it's, into that what's someday. interesting is that it is more so finding the people that will put money into that. And I actually want to back up for a minute on the business model risk because I think that there are, I've pitched hundreds of VCs um, and angels and, you know, 
we have literally had invested like a random person walk into our door and say, I want to invest in this company. <laughs> I'm like, who are you? Um, yeah. It is really important. And I don't think that all investors are even close to being on the same page when it comes to this. But what does success look like? Is that revenue? Is that customer acquisition? Mm -hmm. Is that profit? Because I think it boils down to, you know, good, fast, and cheap. Pick two. You can't have all three, right? And some people come in with that mentality of, you know, I want all three of those things. Um, and they just don't realize, you know, uh, and, and where, where you can, you know, I think this is why, why going back to being transparent is crucial. You know, you can have, um, some investors that want revenue, some of them that want customer growth and some of them that are, you know, wanting profit. So the business is self-sustaining and you need to be clear with all of them on what you're actually doing and, yeah, and it's, very it's, transparent. It's almost impossible to execute on all three of those business models. <laughs> it yeah, is. Yeah. Like I would, I mean, yeah, very, very yes. difficult, like less than 1% yeah. of people do it, right? And and some investors, you know, i.e. Chris Saka, Chris Saka yeah. if you are making a profit, like you're doing it wrong, right? Yeah, I mean, I was so, you know, obviously there are, these types of VCs that invest in these like super high consumer plays that, that strictly exist to gain tons and tons of traction and don't care about the dollars, uh, in the onset. Uh, and that would be probably like people like Chris Saka who early investor in Twitter and that kind of thing. So it's kind of interesting. Watching like uh, CNBC and some other, um, things online. It's always interesting when you get a startup in there. Because they always say, like they always say, the the person interviewing them say, "Is your business profitable?" Is your and watching them dodge that question, and I'm just like, just tell them, like the growth <laughs> isn't profit, the 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 or the the goal isn't profit, the sure. goal is growth. Just say it, and it's like uneasy watching them dodge that question. Well, yeah. that's the difference between a startup and a and an established business. An established business is optimizing for on that particular business model, where a startup is oftentimes searching. That's the definition of startup, you know, searching for that repeatable business model that you can then optimize on. I feel like we probably have some potential investors or investors listening to this like, oh, screw that. I don't want to get into that. <laughs> what do you mean they're not profitable? They're not making money. They're just growing customers. Well, that doesn't make sense. That brings up a really good question. So um, what's different about areas like the Valley where they will invest in these types of consumer plays versus here where it's... Um, I just don't ever see a super high consumer startup. Well, it's not just here. It's the East Coast. I mean, it's anywhere Coast about the Valley. The yeah, Valley is pretty It's really anywhere but the Valley, to be honest. Yeah. But yeah. What's the difference in, in that thinking? Um, maybe more capital to and, and can play a longer game. Yeah. I think it's part of it. Yeah, I think. <laughs> and they've actually seen it work sometimes, like with Facebook, for example. Um, such that I mean, they've you know, got they, they feel more examples, comfortable right, yeah. in that versus like, I've never seen that think, happen in the Midwest. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think that has a lot to do with it. Like they have examples, right? Like yeah. I always say like, oh, we just need a few 20 year olds like driving Maseratis around town <laughs> and everybody's going to go, wait, what the hell is that person mm-hmm. doing? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and we, there's, you know, people can't latch onto that. I also think like, you know, Warren Buffett is huge in the Midwest and like, it's not his style of investing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. And people, the, what does he do? The value add or the value investing? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, I think there's a lot of factors, but I think the number one thing is that, you know, it, it just hasn't happened here. Yeah. A couple of other ones on the list quickly. Um, market adoption risk, you know, are how, what's the competitive landscape out there? Um, what are the major barriers to entry? Can you put a moat around your company uh, or on, around your idea to make it harder for somebody to compete with you? Market size risk, you know, is if the company's successful, is it going to be a big enough market for everybody to make their money out of it? Um, and those are two pretty pretty common types of risks that people look at and try to mitigate the risk. Yeah, so market adoption risk, I basically, you know, if if you're playing in the same space and there's you know, a ten billion dollar competitor out there that's like building the, almost the exact same thing that you're right. building. Like that's pretty indicative. <laughs> yeah, it's like how do you mitigate that risk? Oh, right, yeah. right. Yeah. Market size. Um, next one is capitalization. We talked <clears throat> about that one. Uh, platform risk. We talked about that as far as like, are you building on somebody else's platform? Yeah, that's an interesting one. Um, you know, I, there there have been examples, and I, I can't think of them off the top of my head, but. Uh, companies just building completely on a platform and then that platform blocking them. I, I mean, you know, kind of uh, Zynga is a good example where they built yeah. their, their platform on Facebook, Facebook, Facebook gaming platform and Facebook changed the rules and, and Zynga kind of went 
down the tube. Exactly. Right? Did something like that happen with Meerkat and Twitter? Meerkat was yeah. kind of built on uh, Twitter's social structure. And then, uh, you know, Periscope launched and Twitter said, like, we don't want you gaming our system like that, I guess. I don't know the specifics, but they just basically cut them off. Gag nabbit. Yeah. So if you're building on a, if you're building on somebody else's platform, that's a that's a risk of an investor will want to either understand or, or yeah. recognize that that's a potential. Of, um, and sometimes it's it's worth that risk. Uh, to build on another platform because you know a platform like Twitter or YouTube can get you you know a ton of users, ton of people, ton of traction real quick. Yeah. Um, but you have to be at least have a I think it's an understanding it's, what that means. It's pretty important to diversify that thinking. Um, so if you're building on top of YouTube, like what other you know video platforms can you also integrate so that if YouTube just kind of shuts you off, right. mm-hmm. um, your your business is not bust. Like you have other sources. Um, yeah, that's pretty important. Yeah, and I'm sure like Meerkat looked at it. It's like they were using Twitter as a kind of a hack to get uh, people onto their platform. And once um, once Twitter turned them off, you know, they looked at yeah. other ways to, to, to make that happen. So just to kind of close out the conversation, um, do we want to give kind of a quick summary of, you know, how, how VCs assess risk? There's two other uh, risks on the list, financial risk and legal risk. And obviously those are both... Um, you know, looking at the business itself, uh, looking at copyright, looking at, you know, are other lawsuits potentially involved with your business? Um, and those are the other two risks that are on the list to take a look at. I think it really comes down to uh, transparency, to be honest. Like if, if, if you can, like you were talking about, if you can just be very open about where your company is with, with your VC or with the, somebody who's going to in basically uh, enter into this marriage with you, right. um, I think it's very, very important that they know uh, you know, and, and honestly, like if you take your company through these things, it's helpful for you as well. Right. Yep, so exactly. absolutely. Yeah. I think it provides you a framework to say, you know, where are my outstanding risks? And, and sometimes you can mitigate them and sometimes you can't, but you know, at least if nothing else, when the investor says, I'm going to pass on you because of this, you can either say, well, I've thought about that risk and here's how I'm going to you yeah. know, overcome it. Or totally understand this is where we are in, in the business. And let's talk again once we've mitigated that risk a little bit. I think that it's important to go through um, these risks and, you know, bottom line is if you have a good answer, it doesn't have to be the perfect answer, but if you have a good answer for all the risks, um, it's a good idea to kind of like filter through potential investors and get to the right match quicker. Mm-hmm. Don't try to kind of, you know, jam a square peg in a round hole, um, yeah. you know, have good answers for all these. And if it's not a good fit, it's not a good fit and move on to the next one. Yeah, and we'll put this link in the description so you can kind of follow along with what we're talking about here. Too. I wish I would have had this list when I started. Cause <laughs> <laughs> like, I had to learn that one out the hard way. Right. I think the business of venture capital has changed the most over the last five years. This is Paul Singh. Just spend a few minutes with him and you'll quickly find that he's a brilliant mind when it comes to startups and investment. He's also been around the block. Between his partnership at 500 Startups and founding the Innovative Disruption Corporation, you'll find that this interview is both thought-provoking and challenging. Let's get started. Um, You're a big advocate for startups that can be created anywhere. Obviously, you've invested in uh, companies thousand companies in 40 different countries with 500 startups and other funds that you've been running. What are some of the factors that are, are making this true that you can build it anywhere? And what are the challenges of building outside of the Valley? Well, I think, um, you know, the fact is that like tech companies in general can start from anywhere. I mean, just think about what you need. You need a laptop, you need an internet connection, um, and bonus points if you've got an airport that has a direct flights somewhere. But, but, you know, even that's not exactly necessary. So the cost to start stuff has come down. The tools you need to start stuff has come down. Um, so so that's, those are like maybe, that's probably the biggest factor of why you can uh, start from anywhere. And then on the other side of that, um, you've got investor appetite that's, that's increasingly okay with not just investing in its own backyard. So in other words, like an investor in Fargo may be able to now invest in a company in, in Lincoln, which is kind of cool. The other, the other thing is... Um, because the cost of startups has come down, the number of investors that can potentially help that company has gone up. So it's sort of the rise of the angels. So um, I might not be doing a, be- a good way, a, a good uh, job of articulating that, but just I think the summary there is: is on the founder side of the equation, uh, the tool, the, the the number of tools you need to start is very low. Right? You just need an internet connection and a laptop. 
um, and information is just available readily on the web. On the investor side, uh, not only can you not just invest in your backyard anymore through platforms like AngelList and Twitter and all these other things, um, but um, you don't need big check sizes anymore. You don't like, you know, fifteen thousand dollars from an angel means a lot to a founder that's just starting in Lincoln, and that same fifteen thousand could be. Uh, just as important to a founder starting in Fargo or in, in anywhere else. So um, it's a brave new world. <laughs> so obviously you've been in this space for a long time. What has changed the most from your first investment to the, your most recent one, either from the standpoint of the, the environment for investing and or the, the types of things that you look at? You know, um, I actually think that the, 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 this is going to be more of a self-serving, I think, answer. But I think the the thing that's changed the most, so, you know, it's interesting. If you think about like sort of the continuum of how invest in, investing works, right? Uh, at least venture capital investing works. You've got the founders who are sort of like on the ground. And so when the market changes or something like that, the founders adapt in like a day or two, right? They're like, oh, okay. So for example, oh man, my Facebook costs just went up. Okay, well maybe I'm going to try different keywords or something, right? So they adapt very quickly to changes in the market. Um, for for venture capitalists who are investing other people's money, we have these things called limited partners, right? So on the other side of the, uh, the spectrum, you've got limited partners that are giving me as a VC money to manage, right? They typically uh, are really far removed from the market changes. So, um, you know, I might have closed a fund with an LP last year and they might be, you know, a $30 billion family office and they've given me, let's just say hypothetically, $15 million or whatever, which is a lot of money for, for me as a VC and a lot of money for the founders. But to the LP, that's a very small amount of their, their, their ownership or their overall assets, right? So the thing is, they're super removed from the market. And then I'm sitting in the middle. I've made promises to that LP that, you know, here's how I'm going to manage this pile of money for the next eight years. But on the other side, I've got to look at this founder who has had to recently pivot or recently to change something. And it's, it's tricky. So I think the biggest challenge or the biggest change I've seen over the last five years has been the rate of changes that founders are having to deal with now is increasing, like yeah. the number of pivots and this whole lean startup thing. Like they're moving, they're, they're, they're adapting, they're pivoting. But because of the way that venture <coughs> funds are typically structured, I'm sort of stuck a little bit, right? Mm-hmm. So like, you know, uh, you almost have to like know that, you you know, maybe maybe for me it's like, maybe smaller funds are better because like I can just, I can raise one of those every year, every other year and, and then use that to kind of adapt my strategy to the founders. But that was a very long winded way of saying that I think the business of venture capital has changed the most over the last five years. Um, and, and, uh, I think that's kind of scary, but it's also kind of interesting. Um, but something must be working because, or something must be interesting to the market because you just look at, you know, if you just look at SEC filings for last year, 85 firms in the United States registered to raise sub $50 million funds. Now, I'm not going to argue whether that's good or bad, but like, I think anytime you start to see a lot of entrance into the market, um, I view that as like, okay, there's something really interesting here. A lot of people are starting to see it now. Um, and it's forcing the underlying business itself to kind of like, rethink how we're going to be competitive um so has anything changed as far as what you look at when you were early investor versus how you look at the market now well you know um i'm going to answer this question on a more personal note you know i when i first started investing um five years ago i think the model the mental model that i had in my head was that you know, outcomes are binary, meaning that a company either wins or a company fails. Like it either succeeds or it fails, right? And five years later, uh, now what I am starting to kind of think about is that there's actually three potential outcomes for a company. Um, and, and in order of like in, in order of benefit to me, I'm going to say at the top, a company will succeed, which means that I'll make, you know, my, I'll make money for my LPs. Um, the next level down is a company fails. And I know this is going to sound counterintuitive, but just follow me for a second. So the second, so if, if the number one outcome is the company succeeds, I'm going to argue that the number two outcome is that the company fails because I can write that off and move on. But then there's this third outcome, um, which is uh, that the company sort of doesn't exactly break out, right? So it doesn't fail. It doesn't really succeed. It's sort of in this no man's land. Now, it might be very good for the founders and for the company, and that's great. I want to support that. But because of the way that fund economics work, um, you know, 
tying up the money for a long time in a company is, is a very tricky problem. So, um, uh, I'm not sure how to resolve that yet. I mean, it is, it is very hard. Uh, these are not, um, liquid assets, right? So once I invest, it's in. Um, so now what I'm looking at with founders is, is I'm asking myself, okay, if I believe in the business, what do I believe the multiple will be on the money? That's, I mean, that's a very simplistic way to look at it, but you know, in one line, it's like, okay, if the founder's valuation is this, can we theoretically see a path towards 10x? Mm-hmm. And then the second question is, like, is this the founder? Is, and for me, I think I'm looking for founders that are not only like execution monsters and all this stuff and have charisma and can you know, inspire people to follow them, but perhaps most importantly for me, I've now learned that I look, a lot, I look for a lot of self-awareness. Mm-hmm. Like, does the founder know what they don't know? Um, you know, and, 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 um, anyway, so that's self-awareness. Yeah. 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 And you know, the the irony of this, by the way, is that like, when I look back at, you know, sort of the, like, this is a very anecdotal comment, but when I look back at sort of the investments I've made that have gone on to raise lots of money or, um, you know, gone on to sell for lots of money or whatever, um, you know, the interesting thing is that, that, anecdotally, the people that succeed tend to be the ones that need me the least. And so um, I don't know if this is like how this makes me feel just yet. But one of the things I've, uh, I guess I've come to the conclusion on is that um, the default state of every company is failure. And frankly, the only person that can turn it around is the founder Mm -hmm. and the founding team. Um, That's statement number one or assertion number one. Assertion number two is that um, companies succeed despite the investors, not because of them. So, so while it would be nice to have a founder that's like asking a lot of questions and, and leaning on me and stuff like that, I actually think it's, it's, um, uh, it's more about like, can they, are they asking questions of their peers, hmm. right? Because like we as investors, if you think about it, like the challenges that founders face is, are, are very tactical. Generally speaking, they're very tactical, right? It's like, hey, man, my customer acquisition model is X. What do you think? My, my, uh, man, my engineering team isn't really moving fast enough. What do you think, right? On the other side, you know, it's, the ironic part is they're inv- asking investors who the vast majority of investors have never been operators. Mm-hmm. Um, and even if they were, they're like years removed from it. And so... Um, yeah, the tactics that worked back then when they were exactly. operating as not the same exactly. environment. Exactly. So, so I would say, actually, that... You know, you want to see uh, a founder that's self-aware of those issues, but not necessarily, you know, going after the investors. They're going after the people that that might be able to solve that problem for them. They're looking at their peers that are in the trenches with them, mm-hmm. um, and they're asking questions of them. So, what are some of the most common mistakes you've seen from early founders that often derail a early venture? Uh, well, I think companies fail for a lot of reasons, but I would say that, um, you know, it, it's. Uh, you know, so we've had a we've been fortunate enough to have a um, exposure to a lot of companies that we you know that we get pitched on or that I've been pitched on. Um, I've invested in um, you know far fewer of them, uh, but what I will say is that like on the whole, you know, we certainly have a lot of failure in the portfolio, right? That's just sort of the, the nature of the game is that companies will fail. But you know, I think it is a fact to say that we've never had a company fail because of a you know, a patent issue. We've never had a company fail because the competitors like priced them out of the market. We've never had companies fail because somebody stole the IP and did something shady. Um, All companies fail because they just ran out of money. And so underneath that, I think a lot of people fail. They run out of money because they end up focusing on maybe the wrong things for a little too long. And that is um, like a very classic example is um, they're focused on the product for so much time like that, that they never really thought about the distribution of it. Right. And, and it might be a very technically challenging product. That's for sure. I'm not arguing that like all products are simple, but like somewhere in there, um, like if we're following the 80, 20 rule, I would say that like, I'm going to assume that with 20% of your time, you have to figure out how to get your product off the ground. Um, but with the 80% of your time, you really got to think about like testing all your channels, figuring out how you're going to get this in people's hands. Cause, cause like, Revenue solves a lot of problems, yeah. right? Um, and, and if you really want to get investors to, to invest in your company, I think, you know, like, here, here's a really interesting heuristic for me. Like, just this is a very anecdotal heuristic. But, like, the thing is, um, whenever I find a founder that's – so let's say I'm meeting with a founder for 30 minutes, right? Let's say we've got something on the calendar. We're going to do it. Um, 
regardless of whether they've sent me a deck before or whether we've like talked before or whatever, for me, like one of the red flags is if we spend the first 15 minutes of our first meeting talking about the product in the market, mm. we might not be in the right place because it could be that like, I don't know the market, which should be a red flag to the founder. You don't really want to take money from people that don't understand the market. Now on the other side, like I worry that like this person's spending so much time trying to educate me and all these things that like they're maybe misunderstanding like why investors actually invest. Investors, in order for investors to be sustainable and, 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 and keep investing, we've got to have a few wins in the portfolio. And like the wins come from growing companies, mm-hmm. not the shiniest ones. Right. Um, and so, so, so anyway, for the, the, the most common mistake I think is, is like so much focus on the product that it, it costs uh, distribution. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so it's sort of this creative suicide, if you will, <laughs> of the company, I should say. It's, right. a, it's, a, it's like the company's creative suicide. Right, right. So you've been an entrepreneur as well as an investor. Which hat do you like wearing more and why? <laughs> well, I think so. Yeah, I've been fortunate enough to be on both sides of the table. And um, I've been a founder and I've been an investor. And I think uh, for me, I think the line is very blurred, though. Uh, and I'm not trying to cop out of the question. It's just that. You know, I, I think of venture capital actually as a startup, right? I mean, I think, you know, if you think about the irony of venture capital at the industry level, the, you know, we're talking at the industry level, I'm not trying to call out any firms. At the industry level, I mean, we generally still operate the same way we have as an industry for the last 50 years. And yet we're sitting here trying to invest in companies that, you know, we're, we're saying like, hey, here's 50,000 bucks or 250,000 uh, bucks. Go innovate. Uh, our fund model and everything else hasn't changed for the last 30 years or whatever. So, so, um, but the lines are blurred, right? So, so when I, uh, at the risk of sounding, um, kind of crazy, I think like, you know, on the, I think of the business of venture capital as a startup. And, and so I start to think about like, like, okay, I, I meet all these founders and I see all the challenges they're facing in terms of like pivots and lean startups and lowering costs and things like that. And then I have to go back and figure out like, how does, how does my fund need to change? How do the economics of the fund have to change? How do the terms of the fund to the LPs might have to, how do they change so that I can adapt to the founders? And so when you think about it that way, like I just see it as a very blurred line because like when I was a founder of my company, um, you know, I sat between my customers and my investors. And then now as sort of a full-time on the investor side where, where you know, I'm like the founder of a fund, I guess, I would say that, you know, it's no different. On the one side, I sit, I've got customers, which are the founders. And on the other side, I've got my investors, which are my LPs. So it's really not that different anymore. Um, I actually think that like the worst thing that could happen now is not that like, for example, that I fail or that like our funds don't work or anything like that. I actually think the worst thing that could happen is that we get lazy Mm. and we become, you know, sort of the, the, the investor that like, gets lazy and doesn't adapt to the founders and doesn't put the founders' needs first and, and that sort of thing. So what's the craziest story you've had about someone trying to get an investment from you, either a crazy pitch or a crazy way to find you? Or Well, uh, I'm, I'm going to tell you uh, one that was a little crazy and one that, was, uh, one that really frustrates me. So um, the crazy one was I was in India, I think in 2012. I think in 2012 I went to India probably 20 times that year we were setting up our India operations and, um, and, and I'm Indian of origin. So like, it was cool to go home and, and check everything out. But the point is I was in an airport, uh, sorry, I was in a hotel in Bangalore and I was, uh, I was checking out. So I- in Bangalore, the airport's about an hour away. So, and everything's like a little inefficient. So you got to like really leave like three to four hours before your <laughs> flight. So anyway, I like I wake up I get ready. Um, I'm now I'm downstairs at the hotel in downtown Bangalore and I'm checking out and I, uh, if you can imagine it, I'm sitting there talking to the hotel, uh, uh, you know, uh, concierge or whatever, and checking out, waiting for them to print out my paper. And I, I get this tap on my shoulder, and um, somebody says, "Hey, are you Paul Singh?" And um, uh, I turn around, and I just, I just said, "Yeah." Like I didn't even think about it. I just said, "Yeah." And as I turned around, if you can imagine, I turned around, and in that split second, there were these two young guys standing there, like very close to me. And when I looked down in their hands, they had a picture of me. And in this moment, like in that split second, I didn't know if I was about to get kidnapped or if like <laughs> this was a hit or what. I didn't know what it was. Right. But all I knew was these two people that were super close to me um, had a picture of me. And uh, I just kind of like, it was like, 
Uh-oh. <laughs> anyway, it turned out there were these two founders. They had come from uh, some other city. They, had written, they, they saw some of my tweets. You know, you got, you know, your tweets have got, like, the geolocated tags on them, and I was there speaking at some events. So, anyway, they had seen that I had come to Bangalore, like, two nights before. So they got on an overnight bus to, to, to get to Bangalore, and they basically, like, every time somebody would tweet about where I was speaking, they would, like, rush over to that venue and try to find me. And so, God love these guys. They, they tracked me down to this hotel, um, and then they wanted to pitch me on this idea. And so uh, the, once they explained that, I was comfortable, right? And, and they actually, we had some mutual friends that they, they talked about, and so I, you know, I felt pretty comfortable. So I just ended up saying, like, hey, guys, listen, I can't, uh, I can't, I can't sit here and stay with you, but I tell you what, if you jump in the cab with me, I, 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 I got to go to the airport, we got an hour together, and then I'll just pay for the cab to bring you back. Um, and so they pitched me, and actually... Um, we ended up investing in them actually a month later or so. Uh, they came into the accelerator at 500, um, and uh, didn't, you know seem to be doing pretty well now. A couple of years later, so that's that's sort of the crazy story, and it all worked out well for the founders and for me. Um, the the one that's like more of my pet peeve is like, um, and this might be TMI, so I apologize, but like, you know, sometimes I'll go to an event and I gotta go use the restroom or something, right? So there you are standing at the urinal, <laughs> and you just don't like. Again, TMI, I apologize to the listeners, but I would just say that like sometimes you just want to zone out for a minute, right? <laughs> so, the, so the pet peeve for me is like I've, I, almost once a week, if not once every other week, without fail, what will happen is I'm like using the restroom, standing there, somebody comes over, taps you on the shoulder and says like, hey man, you got a minute, <laughs> I want to tell you about my thing, my startup or whatever, and it's like, no, I'm a little busy right now, I just need to... I just need like, just give me 30 seconds. Let me wash my hands. Let's just, I don't want to meet you in the bathroom. That is not the right place to meet anybody, I don't think. So um, if, if, for, any, for, any of the, uh, if for any of the guys listening in the audience, just don't pitch me in the bathroom. It's just not a good idea. So switching gears a little bit. So uh, what are some of the best resources for an entrepreneur outside the Valley to, to read or watch or listen to? How can they kind of get up to speed in this space? Well, I think... Um, <laughs> If, if you're really looking for stuff to read, I mean, look, almost every investor now is blogging, tweeting, all that. But, but I want to be really careful here because you could kill a lot of time. Um, you could kill a lot of time reading a lot of like thoughts and stuff like that. I think m- the more interesting kind of hack is to think about like who are the three or five or six uh, other founders in your network? And they could be in your same town or the next town or whatever. Like, like stick with them. Think about what like like you you know the the point I'm just trying to make in a very poorly articulated way I think is that like the good news is today that almost everything is on the internet. The bad news is that like everything's on the internet. And so so you could sit there and if you really want to get inside the head of like an investor whether it's like me or any of the other like really brilliant uh, um, you know there's like brilliant guys like you know Fred Wilson and Mark Suster and you know uh, Brad Feld that are writing all the time. You can read that all the time if you want. Um, but I think that it's easy to then kind of like feel like you're going places by reading all that stuff. Um, if you're working on a company uh, and, and you need to move it forward, I, I would argue that like the number one thing you can do is find a, a small group of, of like-minded people that are sort of at that same stage and stick with them, right? Um, and, then, and then certainly like Google stuff, if you're like looking for tactical help, like like, um, you know, hey, I'm just trying to understand, like, how, how does search engine marketing work or how does, mm-hmm. you know, so-and-so work and, and, and Google that. But, like, just stick with, your, stick with other peers like you. I mean, there's, there's so much research that says that you're the average of the five or six people you hang out with the most, and that's both personally, I think, and professionally. Um, and so for, for most of the people listening here, you, you probably know somebody that's, like, running a company that's at your stage or slightly beyond your stage, like a little ahead of you. Right. Those are the people I think you want to stick around with, um, um, because like they're, they're going to want to be the ones that can help you like not only navigate the tactical challenges you're facing, but frankly the the psychological ones too, right? Because that, that's the other thing that's unspoken of I think in 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 this industry is that like you know everybody's like killing it and like everybody's raising money and everybody's like uh, getting press releases and all that stuff. But the reality of this industry is, you know. Um, you're going to have five really good days in a year and 360 degree d- days of the grind. Yeah. And it's sort of the reality. And, and like th- for, to get through those 360 days, you really need to find like some peers that you can kind of like um, talk to because like just reading the blogs of all these investors and stuff is 
probably not going to help on that side. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Um, Maybe maybe just as an aside here, I would just say that like, I don't think anybody on the, any, I don't think anybody listening to this podcast should be doing a startup. I think, um, you know, the, the fact is that because it's cheaper than ever to like start something, everybody's got a startup. Everybody's an entrepreneur. Everybody wants to do that. Like it somehow became cool to be like, it's Hollywoodized now. Right. Um, I think if you really want to build something successful and you can define that however you want, whether it's like you want to make a lot of money, you want to create jobs, you want to make your town better. Ultimately to do any of those things or all of those things, you've got to like build a successful company. Um, I think somewhere along the way we forgot that like that person that built a web product on their laptop over a weekend um, and might have sold it to like sold, uh, you know, three licenses or three accounts to that software. I think we forgot that that person is frankly no different than the person that said, you know, I want to start a coffee shop. Hmm. Maybe the only difference is that the coffee shop owner needed a little bit more money to like, you know, buy coffee beans and Hmm. sign a lease and all that stuff. But like at its core, startups are nothing more than just tech enabled small businesses in Lincoln, Nebraska and everywhere else in the country. We don't need more startups. We need more tech enabled high growth businesses. That's, that's what we need. Um, no more doing startups. Excellent. So what scares you or excites you most about the next 12 months in the, in the investor environment? Well, I think, um, I don't know. It'll, I don't know that it'll scare me, but I think one of the things that we have to think about as investors now is that like, you know, there is this rise of the angels that's happening, right? So we've got more people than ever investing in, in startups and that's maybe not necessarily a bad thing, but some of these companies, some of these investors may lose all their money. Um, and that's okay. We've got a kindergarten class at the airport. <laughs> it happens. It happens. But I, I, I just think that, um, I think it's easy to say that like um, I could be worried about a lot of things, but the thing about being an investor is that if you're not an optimist, like if you don't, if your default state isn't optimism, it's really hard to be an investor. So I'm going to answer your question from a more optimistic state. I think that um, you know we're seeing the rise of the angels. We're seeing a lot of new kinds of investors coming into the space, and so from the investor perspective, I think one of the things that we have to think about as investors now is how do we, what part can we each do to educate some of these angels to educate some of the LPs that want to go directly into companies and educate some of these new kinds of investors uh, that want to come into the market. Um, That's the opportunity. Um, And it only makes our businesses harder because like we still have the same 24 hours in the day as everybody else. And now we've got to like probably tack on one more thing. Um, But, you know, the business of venture capital continues to change. And frankly, it doesn't change any faster than like like how fast the the business of startups is changing. and so just as much as things change, they're, they're always the same, right? Like at the end of the day, I've got to adapt my business to what founders are dealing with and that will remain the same. So now I just need to add the angel into that and add everybody else into it too. That's it for this episode. We hope you enjoyed it. Thanks so much to Paul Singh for taking time to catch up with us this week. If you liked Paul on the show, feel free to let him know on Twitter at Paul Singh. If you have any questions for us, just reach out on Twitter at the IO podcast. If you haven't already subscribed on iTunes, go ahead and do that now. Music for this podcast is brought to you by bensound.com. Until next time, go build something big.